Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to look at a very uh, practical section of the Bible in Thessalonians. I don't know if you've ever really wrestled with, how does the Bible help you cope with disappointment? How does the Bible really help you grieve when you've lost someone you care about? How does faith or God help you deal with the fact that you're watching the news and it seems like the whole world is completely out of control? In other words, how do we cope? How do we cope with disappointment? How do we cope with a broken world? How do we cope with death? And often the the best um, tool that most people have that they can reach to in dealing with coping uh, comes from a woman named Elizabeth Ross who came up with the five stages of grief. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Uh, many of us um, have come across those. She was a medical doctor, and she studied those who went through terminal illness. And she found that these were the major stages folks worked through during dealing with their coping of disappointment, grief, or even terminal illness. And it was denial, it's not happening to me. Anger, I'm mad at it, mad at you, mad at God for letting it happen. Bargaining, All right, I'll call truth for a little bit between you and me, God. If you heal my daughter, if you fix this relationship, if you bring my prodigal son home, then I will fill in the blank, start giving money. Then I will stop smoking. Then I will whatever the bargain is. And if that didn't work, then it came to the place of depression. It's not going to change my new reality I can't live with. But as they worked through the stages, she found that they could come to the place of acceptance. So my question is, this is the main tool folks use to cope in the world today. Is there a way to cope as a Christian? Is it just that plus we add a little Jesus on there, or is there a different way to cope? And I want to encourage you today through the passage in Thessalonians that we're in, that there is a way to cope that's very different that Christians have than those who are not convinced about the Bible or Jesus don't have access to. I want to try and teach you how to cope on a rope. We're going to try and cope on a rope, and I want to give you two particular ropes we're going to use. How do you, when you're coping, when you're grieving, when you have a sense of loss, how do you attach to your coping uh, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the Bible? How do you put hope on a rope of cope? And when you look at a world that's uncertain, that's difficult, like I was talking to a guy last night about uh, soap on a rope, and he's like, I have never heard of that in my life. So, again, it's an age thing. So I didn't even come across that. So this may be a new idea for you. The second thing is when you look at the uncertainty of world anxiety, how do you put God's scope, God's perspective on the rope and go, I'm going to analyze these details, these circumstances through the scope of God's perspective, how God sees it, God's promises he gives me, even in the midst of it. I think God's hope in this passage and Paul's purpose is that we would have genuine, confident assurance in the midst of uncertainty and that we could grieve in a different way than the world around us. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, as we look at how Paul tells us to cope with hope. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's going to use this term asleep two different ways in this passage today. In this case, he's talking about those who have died. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens when you die or when someone you know dies. Well, I wonder if there's clouds. I wonder if there's harps. I wonder if we're going to see him again. I wonder how you get into heaven. I wonder if I've done enough to, to be in God's presence. 
says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. Because if you are, if you don't have confidence about what really happens on the other side, you're going to sorrow as others who have no hope. So notice he, he mentions that everyone sorrows. Everyone sorrows. Everyone has to deal with disappointment and pain and disaster and death in this world. Whether you're an atheist or whether you're a Christian, we all have to deal with the fact that there's death and pain in the world. He says, so all of us sorrow, but I don't want you to sorrow or cope in a way that has no hope. I want you to learn how to attach or tie on the hope of the gospel to what you're going through. Well, how do you do that? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He says, if we believe that Jesus in the past died and rose again, even so, look at that connecting word, even so, because of what he did in the past, God will bring with him those who sleep, again talking about death, in Jesus. We can be as Christians so confident in the future because of our confidence in the past. Jesus came into history. He defeated death. He didn't come back as cast for the friendly ghost. It was not that his story lived on. It's that he lived on. He put on a brand new body. And with that body, he could eat honeycomb in front of his disciples. He could eat fish before them. And he says, I am alive. I am back. And my body is sin free. My body is sick free. My body is resurrected. And our confidence in grieving is we still grieve. We still sorrow but not with those with no hope. Because we say, how do I know I will see grandma again? How do I know I will see that son or daughter again? How do I know? It's because I know what happened in the past. And the confidence of that as a historic event gives me hope in the future that I will see grandma again. But this time, no more sickness. No more pain. No more Alzheimer's. No more not recognizing who they are, because just as Jesus had a resurrected body in the past, so in the future, we will all be given a resurrected body. And if you're not dealing with grief, let's just say you're dealing with disappointment and pain. You say, oh, this is, this is what's happening or what's not happening is driving me crazy. How do you attach the hope to that? There is no way God could use this circumstance. I don't understand how a good father would let this happen. There's no way God could can use this for a good purpose. And while you're coping, you attach the hope. You say, well, if God could take an old Roman cross, the institute or the instrument of torture, and if he could use that to make a way that all would find salvation through God, then I guess he can use what I'm going through too. It'd be imagine if I told each one of us that you're going to walk out today and we've got a little chain with an electric chair on it we'd like you to walk around with. You'd say, an electric chair? Yeah, I want you to go brag on your friends about how God uses electric chairs and put it on your bracelets and put it on your neck. You'd be like, that is obscene. That's how obscene the cross was. It was an instrument of torture and God used that for his glory and for his purposes. And you say, okay, well, it doesn't feel like God could use this in my life, but I'm going to put my hope and confidence that because God used a cross to accomplish his purpose, he'll use what's in my life to accomplish his purpose. That's how you put hope into your cope. Well, he continues. But again, he's contrasting this idea that we have this confidence because of what Jesus did versus our neighbors or our friends. 
So he gives us a few ropes that we can attach. The first rope is God's word. You can know this. We say this to you by the word of the Lord. So God's word becomes the confidence by which we say God's word reported this because it's a historic event. And even though my feelings don't sometimes line up with it, I'm going to trust the rope of what God said versus what I feel. We went home for a family reunion. Best father, grandfather was passing away. And uh, he ended up uh, passing away. And so we were approaching death. And and, and then we're, he died and we were going to go to the visitation. And half of our family are very much not only uh, unconvinced about God, I'd say antagonistic and hostile toward God. And then we decided we were going to take our kids, 10 and 12 at the time, to the, to the funeral, to the wake, to the visitation. And we heard through the family gossip vine. You never hear this stuff directly, you know. So-and-so said that they think this is very inappropriate, what you're doing. Now, I don't know if they really said it or not, but through the family gossip line, we learned that the, uh, the atheist or agnostic part of the family thought it was just psychologically damaging that we were bringing our kids to the wake. And we brought our... Javen, I remember walking up to the funeral, up to the casket, and I remember he wanted to touch. He'd never seen a dead person want to touch it. And we didn't say, you shouldn't do that. We said, well, let's talk about it. And we talked about death, and we talked about dying, and we talked about the hope Grandpa had in resurrection. And the fact that we would see him again. And that just as his body has died, but he's right now presence with the Lord. At least his spirit and his, his soul is. But God is going to one day restore this body. And Grandpa will recognize you again. Now, if I was an agnostic, this might be psychologically damaging. Because the best you have to offer is, this is Grandpa and he's going to rot to death. So value statement, that's just reality. This is Grandpa. And his next stage is he's rotting to death and he'll be dirt. He's warm food. But Christians don't believe that we rot to death. We don't believe like the Hindus that we reincarnate into energy. We don't believe like the Egyptians that we remain the same and you bring your sickness into the next life. We believe that you resurrect to life in a brand new body. And so you say, you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be disappointed. We were never made for a world with death. Death is the final enemy, Corinthians tells us. But... While you're grieving, while you're coping, while you're hurting, rub the hope of the gospel into your grief. We will see him again. And he's without pain. And he's without sorrow. That's how you grieve. You tie it onto God's word. Two, you tie it onto God's sequence of events. This is really interesting. You see, those in Thessalonica had heard that they missed the rapture. It's like Harold Camping, you know, back in uh, May 21st, he predicted the rapture. I know that because it's my birthday. Mental note, May 21st is Chad's birthday. Take some notes right now. It was the invisible rapture and they missed it. So Paul says, hey, I want to make sure you know, you didn't miss it. God has a certain sequence. He's a God of order. And here's the sequence. We who are currently alive, and he includes himself, so seem to imply that Paul thinks he's going to be there at the rapture because no one knows the time of the hour. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, and here's one of those time words, that's got a sequence, we're not going to meet Jesus before those who died meet Jesus, those who are asleep. So the dead meet Jesus first before those who are living. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, so no, it's a loud shout, Jesus is back! The voice of an archangel, He's here! And third thing, the trumpet of God. Maybe it's not that song. But three signs come before Jesus returns. Number one is he shouts, two, a voice, and three, a trumpet of God. 
Then once those things occur, the next event is the dead in Christ. Notice it's in Christ, not Old Testament. It's those who died in Christ is the first event will rise first. What do you mean rise? Does that mean they've been soul sleeping? No, the Bible teaches against soul sleep. Some people think you sleep and then sorry, you end up. Because in Corinthians it tells us as soon as you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. However, your body is part of you. You were made body, soul, and spirit. So the term the Bible uses during the time before your body is resurrected is that you're separated from your body. So God takes all those who were died in Christ and he takes them up and he gives, fixes the body, repairs the body, gives a brand new perfect body and reunites your soul and your spirit with your body. And that's why heaven's a real place with real people, with real bodies. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of Jesus. So the dead in Christ rise first, they get a brand new body. Then, another sequence word, we who are alive during the time has come and remain shall be caught up. Now this word caught up is where we get the word rapture. In English, that's translated from a Latin word. And the Latin word was translated from the Greek word. And the Latin word is rapturo. So the rapture is that we who are alive at his return are caught up with him or raptured up. Now, one of the reasons that we as a church hold what's called the pre-tribulational rapture, which means that before a seven-year period of time on earth when there's a tribulation, we think that the rapture happens beforehand. I'll tell you why. One of the reasons is because here it says that he, he meets them in the clouds. He doesn't come all the way to earth. He comes to the clouds, captures those who are dead and those who are alive, and takes them back. First in Revelation, he seems to come to earth, not into the clouds. Second thing... Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Well, if he's going to come at the end of the tribulation, you could at least calculate the day. When was that treaty signed? Okay, seven years, go. If it's mid-trib rapture, you go, oh, here's the day, it's three and a half years. So one of the reasons, there's lots of them, that we hold to the pre-tribulational rapture is it seems that it's the imminent return of Christ. He'd come at any moment. Another one is related to touching ground versus being in the air. Either way, it says, those meet him in the... Meet the Lord in the air and in the clouds, and they will always be with the Lord from that point forward. Now, if you read books like Left Behind or the movie Left Behind, Jerry Jenkins, who wrote it, actually uh, was a professor in one of my classes at Moody. Uh, he guest lectured at it. And one of the ideas you get in these books is that nobody's going to know what happened. Oh, my goodness, what happened? Was it aliens? Was it chemicals? Why did these people disappear? I just don't think that jives with at least this text. This text seems to be very clear that there's a shout, there's a voice, there's a trumpet. Everyone knows Jesus is back for his own, for his bride. And maybe it's a cosmic dog whistle. Only the Christians hear it. I don't think you can get that out of this text. So I think it is clear. Now, it is clearly explained away to suppress the truth. But it seems like God announces the sequence. And the sequence is key here. The dead in Christ rise first. Then those who are alive get raptured. I'll be at the Lord. And his application here is that we can comfort one another with these words. That the rapture, the hope of healing, the, the fact that God will fix our bodies, the fact that heaven is a real place for eternity and we're with God, the fact that those who have died will get their bodies back and repaired. We can comfort one another. We attach the hope of the gospel to our coping in the midst of it, lest we sorrow with no hope. God, he wants us to comfort one another. Now, he mentions comforting one another because I think he presumes that as we grieve or cope, we're leaning on each other. 
Now, that may be a good assumption back during biblical times. I'm not sure it's always a great assumption for us today because I'm not sure that we always do comfort one another. I remember when my grandfather died, I was in college, I came home and I was dating uh, my wife at the time. We may have engaged at that point. And I remember just a lot of grief. I just loved my grandfather, just the impact he had in my life. Grandpa Bob. I had a Grandpa Bob and a Grandpa Larry. They were a cucumber and a tomato. Um, but they really, Bob, Bob and Larry really were my grandfathers. So Bob um, had died. And when I came to the funeral, I remember a lot of grief. But uh, I remember not sharing much of it. And I, I started noticing a tendency in myself. My wife later that night, or my girlfriend, Beth, she said, you say you're having a hard time with this, but I'm not seeing it. I realized we'd never been through that as a couple. I never knew how to grieve with somebody else. I had some youth pastor came up to me and threw their arms around me. They hadn't seen me in a few years, and I just sobbed in their arms. She's like, why aren't we sharing that? And I realized there's something in me as a guy that, one, it's hard for me to share those kind of feelings with myself, alone with a guy. But I realized with the women in my life, I had a tendency to, to I want to protect them from uh, disappointment or protect them from having to carry an extra burden of what I was going through. So I had a tendency to protect and not share some of those feelings with my wife or my mom. Um, and I realized that was something I needed to fix, that in my desire to protect them, I was actually keeping them from experiencing something with me. And that's an awkward dance to figure out what that looks like. But for me, that began a journey of learning how to grieve and to cope with another person, which is not easy to figure out how to do. So here we have God's final chapter. In fact, if you're ever interested in learning how to grieve with each other or help people during times, um, John Kirby will do a seminar uh, about once or twice a year called Moments of Impact. And will teach you how to how to pray with somebody when they're grieving, what to say and what not to say when somebody's going through a difficult time, how to meet with people at the peaks of their life, but also the valleys of their life. We'll give you some teaching about how to think about the, the one month and the one year anniversary of when someone died or somebody lost someone, how to interact with them. In fact, if you're ever interested in that, uh, on your Connect card, you can just fill out your name and just put moments of impact. If you say, boy, i got so many people who are hurting, but I'm not really good at this thing. Every time we do it, we have folks who come away and they'll say, boy, I prayed with somebody this week for the first time in my life, and it was amazing how God used me to comfort, to work with, to sorrow with someone, to help someone. So that's the first thing we see, is how do you add hope to your cope. But then Paul goes on, he says, but also we have to cope with a world of anxiety, a world with all kinds of crazy stuff going on. How do you add God's perspective? How do you cope with some scope? What's God's scope of what's going on in time? And here's what he says in the next verse. We can cope on the scope of God. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need I write to you. In other words, we covered this when I was there. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, this term, the day of the Lord, is used by the prophet Zephaniah. It's used in Peter and it, it, all kinds of other ones, too. But the term day of the Lord can sometimes, it covers a, a huge amount of time, from the rapture to the tribulation to the return of Christ to the millennial kingdom. So when they say day of the Lord, it's like a broad-brushing term. And sometimes they're emphasizing this part of it, sometimes emphasizing this part of it. So you see Day of the Lord, and he's talking about all the time in which God comes and judges and resurrection and great white throat judgment and all kinds of pieces. So when the Day of the Lord comes, it will come like a thief in the night. When they say, and I notice he's going to contrast they and we. So it's going to be a thief to they, but it's not a thief to we. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. 
In other words, there's going to be a government system in place that says, hey, we got you taken care of. It's all good. It's all peace. It's all safety. And suddenly destruction will come upon them. Just like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, the, 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 the creation itself will long for his return. There will be destruction, the bowl judgments and the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments get closer and closer and closer to each other as all of creation longs for Christ to come and fix all that's broken in this world. And the scope is if you think the world is broken and if you long for it to be fixed, you've got God's perspective because God is saying, I'm just as upset and I'm going to fix what's broken in the world. That's his perspective. And they will not escape. And again, there's they again. But you, now he changes. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So that this day would overtake you as a thief. See, it's a thief to those who don't know, but it's not a thief to those who know it's coming. You still don't know the day or the hour, but it's not going to be a surprise. Oh my goodness, Christ is back. You are looking for it. You are watching for it. You are longing for it. You're not surprised by it. You, by the way, are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. And here's where Paul switched words. He's not saying let us not die. He's saying let's not be passive about the return of Christ. Many times you hear folks who predict the coming of Christ and they sort of turn into a holy huddle. Oh my goodness, we just got to hold on until Jesus gets back the holy huddle. Just, just, just maybe we can make it. Or people just get real passive. You know, you know, what are you going to do? The world's going to pot. Why even help? It's just going to get worse before it gets better. Your dad just talked about the birth pangs. Why help with poverty? The poor are always going to be with you. Why help with sickness? It's always going to be with you. The world's falling apart. He said, no, don't be passive. Because of his imminent return, be ready. Be watching. I want him to come at any moment and find me doing his work. Sharing his message. Helping his people. Because what you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto him. So you want to be caught expanding the kingdom. You want to be caught falling more in love with Jesus. You want to be caught loving people made in His image. Don't sleep. Don't get passive. The, the, the scope of God does not lead to passivity. The scope of God leads to hope. i got a short amount of time. i got to use it well. Use my time well. My resources well. My talents well. This is it gives purpose to your life, the coming of Christ. But don't sleep as others do. But instead, watch, be sober. What that means, it's not about drinking, drinking. We'll talk about that in a second. But those who, are of, who sleep or are passive, they sleep at night like, uh, don't even know what's coming. And they get drunk, are drunk at night. So we're talking about soberness in a second. Now this term, the thief in the night, is used by Jesus, I think, in Matthew 24. It's used in Revelation. Let's use one more location. I want to talk about the place it's used in Revelation. Because in Revelation it talks about the thief in the night when it's written to the church in Sardis. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, Therefore, if you will not watch, same term used in Thessalonians, I will come upon you as a thief. So you can be a Christian and it comes upon you as a thief if you're not watching, if you're becoming passive, if you're not aware of it. And you will not know what hour will come upon you. Now, this is written to the church in Sardis. And that meant something very specific to them. I got a chance to visit Sardis back in October. And here's a, a picture of Sardis. Way on the top is a mountaintop where they had a fortress there. The fortress went all the way back to 6th century B.C. The Persians were trying to conquer uh, the fortress, and it was impenetrable. There was no way in. They had plenty of food, plenty of water. There was no getting in. And this particular fortress that uh, King uh, Croesus had 
was being bombarded by Cyrus and he couldn't get in. So the king had several watchers and their job was to stand guard and watch to protect the kingdom, to keep the kingdom from from being attacked. One day, one of the watchers fell asleep up on the wall. He's looking. And his helmet falls off. Don't, 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 don't. Oh, man. Now, what he doesn't know is Cyrus and the Persians are watching. And they see the helmet. They're thinking, this might be our moment. They're going to open the front gates, come get his helmet at some point, and we'll sneak in. Well, the gate's closed. The gate doesn't move. But one of the watchmen of the Persians look out, and they see all of a sudden, on ground level, is this guy. And the Persians say, there's a back entrance. There's another way in. That guy got down and got his helmet without opening the main door. So the Persians came up during the night, and they found, sure enough, there was a hidden entrance that they got in and they conquered and, and this is how the Persians and Cyrus conquered this particular place in Sardis is because there was a watcher not watching. There was a watcher who got passive. There was a watcher who actually lost the kingdom because he fell asleep instead of doing his job. Not only that, 200 years later, Antiochus will get into the kingdom the exact same way because watchers weren't watching and they lost the kingdom. I think Paul uses this word to Sardis because they were very aware that if, if you could be attacked at any moment, you're watchful. If Christ could come at any moment, you're watchful, you're ready, you're on guard. That's the spirit he wants in those of us who follow Christ. Now, as he says that, he tells us to be sober. Now, what does it mean to be sober? Well, here's what's great about the Bible. Sometimes people hear the word sober and they're launching a big legalistic sermon about what you could and can't do. Before you do that, keep reading. The Bible usually interprets itself. So if you want to know what soberness means, read the next couple of verses. And here it is, by the way, in case you ever wondered. I know many of you asked this in English class. This is it. This is the only application I have ever found in my regular life for diagramming sentences. And you all ask your teacher, when is it ever helpful to diagram a sentence? Sometimes when you're in one of Paul's epistles, you can diagram a sentence to find out what modifies what, and it helps you. So in this case, he says, let us who are of the day be sober. Then if you look, what does it mean to be sober? Well, this next phrase tells you what it means to be sober. It means you put on the breastplate of faith and love. Every day you're watching for God. Say, God, my identity, my breastplate comes from you, your righteousness, your source. Every day you put on love and you love other people the way he loved you. That's what it means to be sober, to be watchful. Two, every day you put on the helmet of the hope of your salvation. God can deliver me. If not in this life, then the next. That's what it means to be sober. And it also means to be sober. Next modifier is... For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the hope that God did not appoint you to wrath. Another one of the reasons for the pre-tribulational position of of, uh, eschatology or the end times. Or the idea that because in Christ we are forgiven by God, we are rescued from his wrath. It's another application here. So to be sober is to be grateful for his gift of salvation. And then this next part modifies Christ. What is it about Christ? He's the one who died for us. That whether we wake or whether we sleep, we live together with him. And all of that, his application is, therefore, when you're walking soberly and watchfully, you comfort each other. 
you build up or edify one another just as you are already doing. The reason I say this is what it means to have scope on your hope is this. You're not surprised at the world falling apart. God told us in advance. When you feel like everything's out of control, is God ever going to fix this? Is God ever going to have a solution? You say, God, you told us this has happened. It doesn't feel like you're in control, but God, I'm going to attach to my cope the reality that you are in control. I find myself worrying, but I'm going to remind myself that you're in control. I find myself wondering if you care about me. I'm going to remind myself that you know every hair in my head. This is how you attach God's perspective to your worry, to your anxiety, to your difficulty. You look at the world and you watch the news, you think it's all falling apart, and you go, no, 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 God has it covered. See, we have a, a culture today that just breathes and spews out fear all the time. And we can become people of fear until we remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity. He's given us a spirit of liberty. And we can be free from that when we entrust God to be the one that's in control and know that He knows what's happening in time, and we edify and comfort one another with the reality that God is in charge. So here, I think, is our application. I want to invite the band to come up for a closing song. I think for each one of us, we need to pick a truth that we are daily scrubbing our mind with, to grab the soap of the Word and begin to rub into our coping mechanisms the truth of what God said. So maybe you're sorrowful, maybe you're grieving, And you need to rub the truth into your mind that God is still with you. That people will be resurrected. That people will be healed. That that Alzheimer's will not have the final say. Maybe that's the truth you need to remind yourself with. Maybe it's going through depression. You feel like God's abandoned you. And you rub that truth into your mind. No, no, no. He will not forsake me or leave me. Maybe you're his anger. You're getting angry at somebody. And you've got a good reason to be angry. What's the truth you rub into your mind? That the Bible says that God is slow to anger. You say, God, if you were so slow to be angry at me, then I should be slow to be angry at this person. Because you've forgiven me so much, I should probably be willing to forgive this too. I should handle this the way you handle it. And you rub that truth into how you're coping with somebody who's doing some stupid thing. You want revenge. You rub into your mind that God is the judge. I'm not the judge. You rub into your mind the truth. The vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not mine, saith Chad. You have worry and fear. And so daily you begin to say, God, you're in control. You're taking care of me. I can't play the role of controlling circumstances and people. But I want you to think about one area of your life that you need to pick a truth from the Word to scrub into your mind daily. And we had a moment this week where one of our neighbors came over. Her, one of her friends committed suicide. So she's sitting in our living room with my daughter and I as we were just asking her questions about suicide, the shame involved in it. She's asked questions, is it forgivable? Her boyfriend, um, it was his best friend who did it, and he was wondering if it was his fault. And as we were talking, I was scrubbing her with truth. Of course suicide's forgivable. God can forgive all things. Really? Of course it's not your fault. We make our own decisions. Really? What happens when you die? Why do people get depressed? Why why does suicide happen? And we begin to scrub the truth that we live in a broken world and that God works with us when we're depressed. God works with us when we're down. God doesn't abandon us. That God wants to work with us. That God loves us. That God is relentless in pursuing us. We got done for about 45 minutes of conversation, maybe an hour, and and as she was leaving, I said, do you want us to pray for you? Oh, I love that. And so my daughter and I prayed for her, her teenage friend, and she got home and her... 
dad emailed my daughter and just said, thanks so much. I could just tell she's doing better. Because she's, she got those questions and those lies rubbed with the truth that there is a God who loves us, reluctantly pursues us. He knows we're living in a broken world, so he says, I want you to know that there's hope in this world. There is a scope for understanding what goes on and that God will win in the end. God's love is relentless in his pursuit of us throughout time.